You're listening to the free preview episode of On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. To hear the entire episode, go to patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer, K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R, and sign up. It's only $5 for the entire series. On Belief is a show about true survivor stories of escaping cults and high demand groups. If that describes you and you'd like to tell your story, it can be anonymous, please email me at info at onbelief.com. Before we begin this episode, this episode contains frank discussion of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. If that is a trigger for you, please do not proceed. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Season 2, Episode 26, R. Kelly. Robert said, don't believe everything you hear. R. Kelly has been charged with multiple counts of sexual assault. I have video of you. Come meet me. I finally got around to watching that documentary. It was a rehash of things they've known for years and everybody rejected it. Black women had been talking about this story since 1991. Surviving R. Kelly accomplished making America listen to these stories. Surviving R. Kelly was the number one trending topic on Twitter during its debut. People were talking about it everywhere. This is not something that he's gonna be able to sing his way out of. Investigators credit the doc series Surviving R. Kelly with helping them build their case. New R. Kelly! New R. Kelly! RCA dropping him from the label. When you start messing with somebody's money, crazy jumps out. Yo, tell me with this Robert. Over the past two years, the world has been watching the R. Kelly story finally unravel after multiple out-of-court settlements, trials, and acquittals. The docuseries Surviving R. Kelly from which you just heard that last clip, is largely responsible for numerous additional victims coming forward, telling their stories, and helping to contribute to multiple law enforcement investigations, resulting in four trials, which R. Kelly will have to stand in the coming months. Here to talk with me about uncovering this story, why he wrote a story about R. Kelly running a cult for BuzzFeed, and what he can tell us about R. Kelly's co-conspirators is Jim DeRogatis, who is a professor at Columbia College in Chicago and author of the book Soulless, The Case Against R. Kelly, and the co-host of Sound Opinions. Welcome, Jim. Jim, when did you become aware of the allegations against Robert Kelly? Well, as I write in the book, it was November of... Uh, of 2000, I uh, reviewed TP2.com, Kelly's fifth album. You know, I made the observation, not a particularly original one, that Kelly had this sort of schizophrenic, jarring way of, of moving between hot and horny and falling to his knees and praying to his dead mother in heaven, begging forgiveness for his unnamed sins. And this is a common trope in, in R&B, you know, the, the contrast between 
uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning. And you've seen it in some of the greats, uh, you know, uh, Marvin Gaye and Prince and uh, uh, Al Green. And I got this fax on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving 2000 that said, Dear Miss, Dear Goddess, you compared uh, R. Kelly to Marvin Gaye. Well, Marvin had his problems. They're nothing like Robert's. Robert's problem is young girls. And um, I, I threw it, Karen, in the slush pile, the big basket of uh, a press releases I'd never read and hate mail, you know, at the Chicago Sun-Times as pop music critic, whenever I reviewed hip hop, you know, that, that's not music, that's noise. Every 12-year-old Britney Spears fan and every 70-year-old Rolling Stones fan uh, felt compelled to write me and tell me I was an idiot if I dared criticize their favorites. So I went home and I had Thanksgiving and over that long weekend, a couple of things about that single page anonymous facts really bothered me. There was a level of specificity that the more I thought about it in the allegations and the names that were mentioned as as sources in the fact that there'd been an ongoing Chicago police investigation that had never been reported. You know, I didn't think that a random player hater would have made up those kind of details. So, you know, I had it done with science. I went into the office once a week. I picked up my mail. I filed my expenses and I tried to get the hell out before an idiot editor could give me an assignment like, well, it's been a long time since we reviewed sticks and they're playing the Star Plaza Casino in Indiana. You know, and I'm like, uh, you know, hey, I'm writing about this guy, Kanye. It's a lot more important. Um, so I went in and I looked at that fax again and I called the Chicago Police Department and I asked for the very long, hard to pronounce Polish name uh, that the fax had mentioned. And they said, we don't have anybody with that name. And I almost hung up. And instead I said, have you got anybody with a similar Polish surname in sex crimes? And a woman picked up the phone, Sergeant Janahuski. I said, I'm Jim Deergatis calling from the Sun-Times uh, about your investigation into R. Kelly. And she said exactly like this. Oh, I was wondering how long it would be before somebody called about that. I can't talk to you and hung up. So I made the trek from the uh, low rent features department at the newspaper into the city room, talked to the city editor. He read the facts. He'd been to law school. There was a specific case, Tiffany Hawkins, that was mentioned. She was the first girl that tried to stop him, sued him in civil court. And uh, I said, well, you know, he said, if this lawsuit's been filed, we should be able to track it down. I'm going to pair you with the court reporter, Abdon Palish. And we were off and running. And we spent six weeks of, you know, 12 or 14 hour days writing the first story, which ran on December 19th, 2000. And we thought we thought he was done. I mean, we thought that with the level of detail of the lawsuit and Tiffany did not talk to us, but other sources connected to that case did uh, other witnesses. She planned to call. We got some sealed documents from Michigan about the Aaliyah marriage in 1996 that had never been reported. We had a lot in story number one. It dropped. Mostly we got a tremendous amount of hate from uh, Kelly's fans in Chicago and black radio stations and media pickups that were a paragraph long that said the Chicago Sun-Times is reporting. And, you know, uh, that was it for story number one. Did that make you realize just the level of power that he had at that moment? Yeah, absolutely. It, it certainly did. Um, he was revered. He had 
you know, risen from singing for spare change on the subway platforms to become the dominant artist in R&B of his generation. And, you know, eventually the best-selling artist ever from Chicago, 100 million albums sold of his own and those he produced for dozens of other artists, ranging from Michael Jackson and Celine Dion to eventually Justin Bieber and Lady Gaga. He was revered. But we had rung a lot of doorbells and sat in a lot of living rooms and talked to a lot of loved ones and some victims. And, you know, the disconnect between Kelly's public persona and the love he got from the community and the overwhelming, we thought, evidence uh, that we had compiled, you know, it, it was jarring because this was a predator. He was destroying lives. We had talked to many of the, those people whose lives were, were, were touched by this evil. You know, it, it was not squaring with the hero of I Believe I Can Fly. How does that feel to sit across from someone and their parents who you know was a victim of sexual assault when they were 14 or 15 years old? The thing I always come back to about those interviews was... A, the willingness of people in the black community to talk to two very obviously white and clueless reporters. You know, Abbott Palish calls himself an Irish-Polish leprechaun, and I'm a fat rock critic, you know, and we're sitting there. And what we got was, uh, you know, thank you for listening. No one has wanted to hear our story. But even more than that, we got uh, we didn't get anybody hated this man. The most common thing we kept hearing again and again and again is brother has a problem. Brother needs to stop. Brother's got to get help. And, um, you know, it, it was not people trying to tear this man down. It was people who'd been hurt and who didn't want him to continue so that it happened again. You know, and I think in, in retrospect, the fact that we were reporters and we were listening, I think we were trusted more than police because, you know, we didn't I did not know this until January of last year. But Tiffany Hawkins, before suing him in civil court, had tried to get criminal charges pressed by the Illinois state's attorney. And as she tells me in Solace, they didn't want to hear about it. I was a young black girl who cared. And that's the other thing that I've heard a million times, you know, is nobody matters less than young black girls. And I'm not saying that as a 55-year-old fat white rock critic. I'm saying that as a journalist amplifying what dozens of women have told me. What was the eventual outcome of that investigation? Well, Chicago PD was being frustrated in many people not wanting to speak to them and in powerful forces not wanting to do anything. You know, forces like Rainbow Push, the Reverend Jesse Jackson and the Black Church and moneyed interests, certainly the music industry. So we continued to pursue the story and to accumulate a lot of evidence. But December 21, 2000, I think I said 19, December 21, 2000 was story number one. On the first Friday in February, February 1 or 2, 2002, I was working at home and the phone rang and it said, uh, gruff voice said, go to your mailbox. And there was an unmarked manila envelope with an unmarked VHS tape. And uh, that was 26 minutes and 39 seconds of Kelly uh, violating a 14-year-old girl. We had heard about this girl. We had talked to her family uh, for uh, story number one. I had talked to her aunt. 
but we could not get further. Uh, we, we, we couldn't confirm anything. And uh, the family denied everything. In fact, sent us a threatening uh, letter, although we never mentioned that that contact or or that girl certainly never named her. But we'd been asking questions, uh, you know, uh, threatening legal action. To this day, I'll note not a word I've ever reported for 19 years has been subject to a legal challenge or a correction or a clarification. No, we got this right. So we knew of this girl. We knew of this contact. We knew uh, the aunt. And the aunt had called around Thanksgiving a year later, 2001, and said, oh, my God, there's a tape on the streets. I didn't want to believe what you were asking about when you called last year. But there was no story until there was a tape. So Thanksgiving 2001 and then February 2002 is when the tape somehow made its way to me uh, working at home. And within a couple of hours, uh, we had uh, delivered it to the unit at the Chicago Police Department that had been investigating him now for that point, two years. And I mean, the videotape was evidence finally that could not be um, denied or that could not, I mean, you, you didn't need cooperation from uh, black community members that were, you know, wary of speaking to the police. There it was, 26 minutes, 39 seconds of crystal clear evidence of of the most disturbing sort that I'd ever seen. Based on what you know about Robert Kelly, was he always a controlling partner? Or is this something that developed later on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I only realized as I was uh, going back to so many dozens of interviews and writing the book was the recurrence of phrases that, you know, in the early reporting, I didn't even realize the significance. Brainwash was a word that had come up uh, many times. Cult is a word I didn't hear until July 2017. But uh, brainwash, controlling the behaviors of separating young uh, girls from their family members, their loved ones, their friends, denying them contact with everyone and anyone except for him. The you are not allowed to speak to other men thing, the the uh, uh, orders about how they should dress. You know, uh, I mean, he liked to keep the girls in in sweatsuits that did not reveal their form to any other man. Uh, you know how they were with him in private was a different story. But um, I mean, it's almost as if they did not exist in public. It's exactly like they didn't exist in public. They were they were not to speak to any other man. They were to ask permission about when to uh, when to eat, when to go to the bathroom. You know, but I, I think that the I think I didn't start to realize the degree of control uh, for some time. You know, it, it took many women telling those stories uh, and, and hearing a pattern that spanned eventually decades and, you know, all across the country, you know, uh, girls that he had picked up in, in Florida, in, uh, in uh, Georgia, in uh, California, in Miami, and, and many in Chicago. And you, you begin to realize it's like I'm, I'm hearing some of the same words again and again and again. To unlock the rest of this episode, visit patreon.com forward slash K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R. It's only $5 to unlock over 20 hours of content.